Jesus was never one to shelter individuals from reality. He knew that the threat of spiritual delusion was real and that the consequence was eternal. Therefore, Jesus always sought to shatter unwarranted religious hope. If he detected in someone a false sense of security, if he detected a self-righteous dependence on good works or spiritual experiences, he would openly challenge spiritual assumptions. Our Lord knew that occasionally blunt words are required to jar individuals loose from false pretenses and false hopes about salvation. And the most classic example of this in, found in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 7. And so this morning as we begin our time in God's Word, I'd invite you to open up there with me to Matthew chapter 7. This chapter is really a chapter in our Bibles that has a way of leaving an indelible mark on saints. Matthew chapter 7, I remember the first time I really encountered it. I was a sophomore at Montana State University when I first understood this passage with spiritual eyes. And it was really a shock to my system. It was really a crack in the dam in my entire understanding of Christianity that really needed to be rebuilt from the ground up. And this chapter here, it just rings like a bell on a clear morning, warning false professors of the faith to make sure that they are true possessors of the faith. You see, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus highlights truth, truths about salvation and eternal life that we might naturally tend to neglect or overlook. To see what I mean with me this morning, look with me at Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." There's really much we could say about this passage, but let me just draw a few observations. According to verse 14, of those who seek after eternal life, only a few find it. Many seek for it and do not find it. Secondly, in verse 15, false teachers appear in sheep's clothing. They look like good teachers, true teachers. They're, they're identical on the surface. Their words can even be similar, but yet they're false. Jesus says, 
you will know them by their fruit. He says that in verse 17. Every good tree bears good fruit. So beyond just false, pro- false prophets, he says Christians in general, every good tree bears good fruits. Every true Christian will bear the fruit of salvation in their life. Also note that on the last day, there'll be individuals who emphatically believed in this life they were saved only to come to the horrific understanding, realization that they were wrong when it's far too late. And then finally note that Jesus here is just not willing to hold back these hard truths. Again and again, we see Jesus rebuking those who wrongly thought that they were inheritors of the kingdom of God. We see another example of this over in Matthew chapter 15. Just turn with me a few pages to the right in your Bible, Matthew chapter 15. And here Jesus lights up some of his greatest critics. Look with me at Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever, but you say, whatever has been given to God, I He is not to honor his father or mother, and by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of men the precepts of, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, our familiarity with this passage might cause us to assume that these words would have landed on the Pharisees, on those Pharisees, maybe softer than they actually did. I mean, understand what Jesus is saying. He's, he's lambasting them here, these religious leaders of the day, and he calls them hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites, your worship is vain. It's worthless. It's meaningless. And he says, your hearts are far from God. And again, these were the religious teachers of the day. And so we don't have to wonder how these words were received by these Pharisees. Look at verse 12, Matthew chapter 15, verse 12. Then the disciples came and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? They took offense to this, Jesus. Do you know that they were offended? And Jesus, yeah, of course they were offended. Jesus deliberately tried to trip them up with his words. Look what he says in verse 13. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant, shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Jesus knew that it was better to uproot now what was destined to be uprooted later by the Father. So Jesus, being God in the flesh, the God-man, was able to tell perfectly what was in their heart, and he knew they had false faith. Jesus saw with pristine clarity who were the true children of God and who were not. And yet Jesus lived in a day when there was just massive spiritual delusion in the culture. The truth of God's word, also in our day, is accompanied by massive spiritual delusion. 
The word of God has been severely obscured. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been severely obscured in our day like it was back then. And so as a result of this spiritual delusion, Jesus was constantly decrying false religion. We see this also in the gospel of Luke. Turn with me in your Bibles to the right to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13. This is where the chapter that we've been studying for the past several weeks, or the chapter before the chapter we've been studying. Look at Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. And as Jesus was passing through, through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few being saved? Now here Jesus gets a valid question from this man. This man, likely a Jew living in one of these smaller villages outside of the city of Jerusalem, was beginning to understand that if what Jesus was teaching was true, then what the Pharisees had taught was wrong. As you see, according to the Judaism of the day, essentially all Jews were saved except perhaps notorious sinners only and, and those like the tax collectors. But this man was coming to see that if Jesus, what Jesus was teaching was true, then there was actually only a few being, being saved. It seems that he understood clearly that there was a great contradiction between the Pharisees' teaching and Jesus' own teaching. He understood that most were spurning Jesus' message. And so taking this realization in, he says, Lord, are there just a few being saved? In other words, shouldn't there be more following you? Shouldn't there be more interested in what you're saying if it's true? And look how Jesus answers in verse 24. So interesting. Are, are there only a few? Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the, of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. We find here Jesus once again confronting false faith. Jesus essentially says to this man, yes, there's only a few being saved. And therefore, make sure you get it right. Many will miss out on the kingdom of God. Many saints of old will be there. The prophets will be there. But he says, but you yourselves, the Jews of Jesus' day, you'll be thrown out. And many will come from east and west and from north and south. All around Israel will come. Many Gentiles will come and will be there in the kingdom on that day. They'll recline at the table. They'll feast in the kingdom of God. But you, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, you will be shut out. That's what Jesus says boldly to this man. And while we know there, there were certainly many exceptions, Jews, righteous Jews in Jesus' day who did come to him in faith, there were many Jews of Jesus' day who were fatally deceived about their own future destiny. 
Based upon the teachings of men, they had hoped that they were headed for heaven, but it was a false hope. And so in the very next chapter, Luke 14, when Jesus accepts an invitation to dine at a Pharisee's house, we find him once again warning about false faith. And he does so particularly in verses 16 through 24 through a means of a third parable. This this third parable that we'll consider this morning. And each one of the parables is really an indictment on the entire pharisaical system of the Pharisees. In the first parable, Jesus sort of upended the Pharisees' lifestyle of just belligerently chasing after the praise of men. And instead, he called them to a life of humbling themselves before God. And then in the second parable, he called them to a way of living that gave no thought to getting in return. Just giving because God himself gives. But the third parable strikes a blow at the very base of the tree. At the very root of Pharisaical Judaism. You see, it was dead. The whole tree was dead and Jesus exposes that. What Jesus revealed earlier about the mass delusion of the Jews in chapter 13, Jesus now emphasizes it. He illustrates it in parable form. And that's what we find today in Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. And really the the punchline of this parable is squarely directed against the false religion of the Jews. But there's really much we can learn about false religion today that is applicable to us and for our current context. Spiritual delusion is just as deadly today as it was 2,000 years ago. So let's begin this morning by carefully reading this parable in full. Look with me in your Bibles at Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with Jesus heard, heard him say this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said to the master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. So this is the parable that Jesus gave as a rebuke against false religion. He's teaching through this parable, through this story. And I'd like to break this parable up this morning in five sections. The first is, I just want us to understand the occasion of the parable. The occasion. By this, I just want us to understand the setting that Jesus was in and the occasion that prompted him 
to give this third parable. And therefore, we sort of need to re-immerse ourselves back into the context of Luke chapter 14. Going clear back to verse 1, we find here Jesus entering into this Pharisee's house. The text says all the eyes were trained on him as Jesus enters in. And what does he find in front of him when he enters? A man suffering from a, a serious physical condition. It seems like this man was placed there to see if Jesus would again heal on the Sabbath, supposedly breaking the law of the Pharisees. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the man. He summarily heals him and sends him on his way. And then he rebuked the other guests, the Pharisees and the lawyers who were there that day. He rebuked them for elevating their man-made traditions over the word of God. And then in verse 7, Jesus watches as the dinner party, the dinner must soon is about to begin, and they all begin to sort of shuffle after, clamor after the most prestigious seats in the house. This is what he sees. And as he's noticing them trying to get the most honorable place to sit, Jesus gives his first parable. And the point of that parable, although it was likely missed by many there that day, was that they should give up seeking after the praise of men and instead start working on humbling themselves before God. See what he said in verse 11, Luke 14, verse 11. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, humbled by God, that is. But he who humbles himself in this life will be exalted by God in the future. This, of course, was just an indictment on the entire lifestyle of the Pharisees. Jesus said of the Pharisees themselves in Matthew 23, 6, that they loved the place of honor. They loved the chief seats in the synagogue. But Jesus' words here were not done. In verse 12, he directs his attention onto the host of the party. He had addressed the guest, and now he's addressing uh, the host, which again, according to verse 1, was a leading Pharisee. And so now Jesus takes his aim at him and he gives him a second parable, which again is a framed around a dinner party. But here, Jesus tells the host who he's to invite and who he should not invite when he's having a dinner party. First, in verse 12, he tells him, do not invite your friends. Do not invite your brothers or your extended family or your rich neighbors. You see, Jesus had the audacity here really to tell the host of the party that he was there sitting in that all of his invited guests were really the wrong type of people to invite. And we say, well, why, Jesus? Why do we care about this? Because Jesus knew that it was the custom of the Pharisees to give in order to receive in return. They were honoring each other by giving these dinner parties, knowing that they would be honored in return. This was the, the way that the Pharisees operated. And so Jesus so look what Jesus says in verse 13. He tells them who he should invite. This is who you are to invite. Jesus says to him, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed since, you do not have the, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus' point is that we're not to give so that we'll get in return. We're to give because we serve a giving God who's given to us. We give because God gives. And so now with this, Jesus really had a, rebuked everyone in the room. And Jesus pulled no punches. Guests and hosts alike were offended at this point. And Jesus had ended this second parable by pronouncing a blessing on those 
who would be repaid for their good works in this life at the resurrection of the righteous. That is, at the Bema Seat judgment, when Christ will judge the resurrected and raptured saints before the throne of God in heaven. And with this pronouncement of blessing by Jesus, this pronouncement caused another dinner guest to make another pronouncement of blessing of his own. Look what this guest says in verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It would be so wonderful to have been there in the room observing this scene. But this remark, coming on the heels of Jesus' own, state, own statement, seems to be a bit of a, a snappy comeback to our Lord. It's a quip designed maybe to break the ice or break the tension that was there in this room. Probably not fully understanding the point of the two parables that Jesus gave, but feeling a sense of sting and rejection in Jesus' words, this man sort of provides a a hope-filled retort. Perhaps he's thinking, yeah, maybe we do love to seek after the honor of men, and maybe we do love to give in order to get in return. That's true of us, but at least we'll be there in that great future feast. We'll eat bread. We'll dine in the future kingdom of God. It was, with, it was as if this man were sort of raising his glass and giving a toast, saying, here's to our future destiny. Here's to the great future feast that awaits us in the kingdom of God. See, of all people in Israel, there was no group of people who had more confidence that they would enter the kingdom of God than the Pharisees and lawyers. They assumed that their admission to that great future feast was sure and certain. They were confident, based upon their slavish adherence to traditions and regulations and rituals, that their works were sufficient to secure them a seat at that future table in the kingdom of God. You see here that this man was not wrong about the reality of the future kingdom and the future feast. But what he was wrong about was that he was going to attend that feast. Where this man, Jesus himself even spoke about this great future feast. We saw that back in Luke chapter 13, verses 28 and 9. Jesus believed in this future feast, but where this man was wrong was in his unwavering confidence that he and his companions were headed there. And not only that they would be there, they believed that they would be God's distinguished guests on that day. And they assumed that they would be filling the seats of honor around that future great feast. And in the face of such delusion, as the Jews in in attendance were probably all amening this comment, this toast by this man, Jesus could not celebrate with the rest of the room. Instead, he really takes the air out of the room by giving a parable. And then we'll see in, in verse 24, he really goes straight for the jugular of their false confidence. So so this is the occasion of the parable. Next, Jesus launches out in the parable itself, and once again, it centers around a dinner feast. Now, just a side note, my Bible has a sort of a paragraph section break kind of wedged between verses 15 and 16. That should not be there. Verse 15 should go with 16. Maybe your Bible is the same. But look with me now at verse 16. But Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. So I'm calling this section, these two verses, the invitations. 
the invitations. And note with me some of the important details here. First, we find that a well-to-do man was throwing a great banquet. The, the words in the text used to describe this event are big and, and many, indicating that this was like a, a huge gala-type event. He invited many guests. The host of such a feast would need to be extremely wealthy to have afforded this big of a, a dinner gathering. And those whom he invited would have sent a reply in response to their invitation, sort of like we think of an RSVP. They, they would have informed the host of their intention to come. And thus, thus, these invited guests would have made their intentions clear. Yes, we plan to come to your party. Then the host would go on with his dinner preparations accordingly. And when all the preparations were ready, he would then summon the guest a second time. This was just the accepted norm of the day. Preparing such a large banquet would necessitate the gathering of a large quantity of resources and supplies. And as such, there could be no approximate time given, but it would be just the customary for there to be a first invite and then a second summons to come to the meal. And in verse 17, that day comes when, when the meal had been prepared, the, everything was ready, and the master's slave goes out and summons the guest to come for that sec, for this to come now. It was the second summons. One commentary I read on this passage that was written back in the 1930s noted that at that time it was still common for wealthy Arabs to make such a second call or a second summons known when preparations were ready for such a feast. Perhaps that's still the case today. But this commentator also noted, he said this, to refuse the second summons would be an insult, which is equivalent among the Arab tribes to a declaration of war. I understand that, this, that it would have been an insult to reject this second summons. But this is exactly what happened. The next section of the parable here, beginning in verse 18, I'm calling the rejections. Look at the rejections with me, beginning in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. So we know that the master had invited many, and there was sort of a universal rejection of the invitation. The text says they all alike began to make excuses. It's as if each one independently made a decision not to come. But the rejections occurred sort of unanimously or simultaneously, one after another. So with one accord, they all declined. And, all, and although he had invited many, Jesus gives three standard or representative excuses. Look at the second half of verse 18. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. So here's the reason that he could not come. He had already purchased a field or an estate and a piece of land. And he insisted that he must go out and see it. So he politely requests, let me please be excused. But we have to say this excuse makes no sense. This piece of land would have still been there waiting for him after the banquet had finished. And, and would he not have already seen it before purchasing it? So this excuse is somewhat flimsy already. And the second excuse is similar. Look at verse 19. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. 
We ask again, but wouldn't normally one go examine the oxen or try them out before the purchase of them? This would be like buying a vehicle without test driving it. And if this man was wealthy enough to buy five pair of oxen, which would have been extremely wealthy, could he have not sent one of his servants out to test the oxen for him? Or couldn't he have just simply waited until the banquet was over to go out and examine these oxen? It's not like they would have been stolen or ran away or something. So again, this is another feeble excuse. And the third is worst yet. Look at verse 20. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. It's, it's noteworthy that there's no request to be excused here. He just notifies of, him, of his tent. I'm not coming. The man just gives a blanket refusal here this third, in this third instance. Uh, he says, I've just been married, so I'm not coming. And really, there, there's no reason that marriage would have naturally caused one to miss such an event. I mean, this would have been an amazing event. You would have wanted to attend this event. This would be like a once-in-a-lifetime event. So marriage would not disqualify one in any way. In fact, in the Old Testament, a man in his first year of marriage was, os- was often freed from other responsibilities like service in the military. And so likely this man would have had more time on his hands. One commentator noted uh, the, about this following third excuse, he said this, given their low view of women, the Pharisees would have found this excuse to be the most laughable of all. In the first century Jewish society, women did not dictate to their husbands what they could do or could not do. So this excuse, like the first two our Lord created, was transparently ridiculous, end quote. I think that's exactly right. Jesus chose really to create these flimsy excuses to, for this dinner party. And he does so just to highlight the ridiculousness here of people turning down an invitation to such a party like this and the way they went about doing it. It was absolutely outlandish for everyone all at once to be rejecting this second invitation. The Pharisees and the lawyers there in that room would have been laughing at this. This is, this is unreal. This could not be to have everyone comprehensively just snub this host like this. It would have been completely unheard of. And yet this is the extreme scenario that Jesus is painting. So beginning in verse 21, we find the master's reaction to this. And I'm, a, I'm calling this next section the inclusion. Beginning in verse 21, look at it with me. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry, and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. So in the face of such rejection, and even the public humiliation that this host was feeling, his response is to become angry. He's angered by this. Again, this was an outrageous act of insult. This was an an egregious breach of social etiquette. And so with each of these lame excuses, it was just insult added to injury. But with preparations already having been made, the party must go on. And now we need new guests to fill the house. New guests must be invited. And so the master instructed the slave to go out into the streets and lanes of the city. That that is the the wide roads, literally, the broad roads, and also the, the narrow alleyways, the narrow streets inside the city with the purpose of calling the poor and the crippled 
and the blind and the lame. And note that they were to be brought in. It's like, just go out and get them. Bring them in. But much like the invited guests in mass, in mass declined the invitation, a wealthy man filling his house with these sort of social outcasts would have been equally unheard of. They would have been like, what? He invited those people? He filled his house with them? Again, this would have seemed ridiculous in the Pharisee's ear. But this is exactly what the slave does. Again, in verse 22, he says, Master, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. I think it's right to assume that a little bit of interval of time has transpired between verses 21 and 22. The slave carried out his master's wish. The, the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame have now all been brought in, and yet there's still room. And this comment, again, accepts, just gives us an idea of how big of a banquet this is. Says, I've gathered the MIP, and there's still room. And this, Jesus continues in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. So he says, Now look, I want you to go outside the town. Uh, go, you've, you've gone into the city's the streets and into the, the, the alleyways. Now go further out into the highways and go out along the fences and gather those who might come in. Compel them to come in. This would have been the territory of, of vagrant wanderers and even Gentiles, merchant Gentiles who could not live with inside the city. They would have been living and working outside the city. And so even these are invited to come. And not only invited, they're here compelled to come. It, the master tells the slaves, compel them, plead with them to come, urge them to come. And once again, the Pharisees would have been scoffing here. This is, there's just absolutely no way that this scenario would happen in real life, that, that a man who's so wealthy would fill his house, house full of this sort of people and, and then even invite Gentiles to fill his house. No, no way. They would have thought this is impossible. But the master in Jesus' parable desired this very thing. The last phrase of verse 23 makes the master's goal clear. He says, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. He wanted his house filled. He wanted all the seats taken. And so with these words, I believe the parable ends there in verse 23. The words to the master, or the words from the master to the slave, ends here in verse 23. And the closing note of the parable is an expression of the master's heart for his house to be full. But you say, well, the words continue in verse 24. What about verse 24? Well, look at that verse with me. Verse 24 it says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. I don't believe these words are the words of the master in the parable. I think Luke, the gospel writer, intended us to see that these were actually Jesus' words. He's stepped outside the parable now. And Luke has left behind us a couple clues in the text to help us see this. The first is this, the phrase, for I tell you, that, that phrase, for I tell you, is a phrase commonly used by Jesus. We find it ten times in the Gospels and six times even in the Gospel of Luke alone. And each time this phrase is used, it's always Jesus directly speaking. Jesus typically uses this phrase to apply his teaching, apply truth to his audience. So that's a clue to note. And then secondly, 
Although it's undetectable in English, the word you is in the plural form. Literally, it's for I tell all of you, speaking to all of you. If these words were a part of the parable, then it would have been a singular you from the master to the slave. But it's a plural you. And so it informs us that Jesus is now speaking to the entire gathering in that Pharisee's home, his audience who is listening to him. You see, it's as if Jesus was taking this parable and laying it on top of all of them and saying, this is you. This applies to you. This, I'm talking about you here. And at this point, really, the literal and the figurative in the parable sort of merge. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets gave promises of a future kingdom. As we read this morning from Isaiah 25, the Lord promised a future kingdom and a restoration to the, nat- the nation of Israel. But it would come about through the Messiah. It spoke of a Messiah who would come, the suffering servant of the Lord who would suffer for the sins of his people. And now this Messiah had come. He was in their midst. Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament promises in front of the Jews around him. He was walking it out. For example, when the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, they asked him at one point, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah himself, or should we wait for someone else? That's Matthew eleven three. Then Jesus quotes from Isaiah to demonstrate that he was the expected one. He says, look, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are even raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. So it was, yes, yes, it's true. I am that one. I am the expected one. I'm doing everything that the Old Testament said I would do. Sadly, what was occurring is that the Jews weren't picking it up. They weren't understanding that he was the one. We see this in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to his own. He came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. The Jews rejected him. You see, the prophets had invited the people of Israel to come to the kingdom. They had spoken about it in the Old Testament. They had given the first invitation But now the king was in their midst. The kingdom was right there. The king was in their midst, and they rejected the king, and so rejected the kingdom. You see, their love for honor and prestige before men caused them to miss the kingdom. This doesn't mean, of course, that all Jews miss the Messiah. There's always been a faithful remnant, a remnant of Jews who saw themselves as spiritual beggars, who knew that they were spiritually bankrupt and they needed a Savior, and so they clung to Jesus Christ in faith. There's always been a faithful remnant, and they were the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame who were inside the city. They were Jews who saw themselves as spiritually poor, They were Jews like the tax collector in Luke 18 who desperately called out to God for forgiveness, beating his chest, wouldn't even look up to heaven because he knew that he was a sinner. So there were many Jews who entered the kingdom, but there are also Gentiles who accept the invitation, Gentiles like you and me, non-Jews. Gentiles, as Luke 13 says, who come from east and west and from north and south to enter the kingdom. Gentiles who are not a part of the chosen nation of Israel. Gentiles of whom Paul writes in Ephesians that they were formerly excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers, these Gentiles, to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now these Gentiles, through faith in Christ, have, by, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. So the spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame of Israel, they did accept the invitation. And many Gentiles accepted the invitation. But the religious elite, the Pharisees, the lawyers and the scribes, those who should have been most looking forward to and most expecting the kingdom, they spurned it. They, they rejected the king. And so Jesus tells them plainly in verse 24 again, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. In essence, Jesus told everyone at that dinner party, all of them, who so confidently assumed that they would be there in the kingdom, who would, who would be the blessed recipients of that future feast of that day, he says, look, you will not be there. You will not enter into my dinner. In fact, you, you won't even taste it. You're not going to eat of it. You won't even taste it. So then we must say, well, it's no wonder the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. It's no wonder they killed him. He had just told them as plain as day that they were not headed for the kingdom. They were excluded. They would not occupy the seats of honor at that future feast. In fact, they would not even be there at all. Their place would be on the outside of the kingdom, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what Jesus said to these hypocritical religious elites of his day. And they said, well, what do we do with this parable? What do we do with Jesus' teaching here? We're not Pharisees. In majority, uh, we are as Gentile as Gentile can get. So what is our takeaway in this passage? I think there really are many, but let me draw your attention to two in closing. First, note carefully how confused these Jews were about their eternal destiny. Just note their confusion. They were convinced that they were in. And by external activity, their religious devotion was unparalleled. And yet they were far from the kingdom. They were blinded by their own self-righteousness and therefore unable to enter. Their confidence was entirely constructed on the traditions of men and their own self-righteousness rather than the word of God. And after 2,000 years of church history, there's really no less spiritual confusion today. It's as if a giant cloud of spiritual delusion has centered in over the church of today. Many Christians, many professing Christians today are confused about their eternal destiny. The true saving gospel of Jesus Christ has been perverted in many cases. It's been twisted and redacted and so truncated that it's so far from the truth, you can't even find the true gospel in many churches today. So many people are convinced that they're headed for an eternal life because of spiritual event that happened in their life many years ago while they're just blowing past all of the scriptural warnings that we find in God's word. They have no love for the scriptures. They have no power over sin. They have no desire for holiness, no love for the church, no desire to give their life in service. They just go on lulled to sleep by the evil one, deluded about their future inheritance, while awaiting their future Matthew 7 moment, when in horror they awake to the awful reality that is their future. There's nothing else so important in all of life, so worthy of man's most important attention and inspection and scrutiny than to where he is headed for all eternity. And yet, sadly, it's so often overlooked, so often assumed. 
And yet Jesus assures us that, again that there are many who will be turned away on the last day. Many professing Christians who say to him, Lord, Lord, we did so many things in your name in this life. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. So what's our takeaway? May this not be true of any one of us. May none of us be deluded in this way. May we diligently search the scriptures and search our hearts to make sure that we have understood the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ, that we get it, that we understand what God requires of us, that we understand what it is to have faith in Jesus Christ alone, to place our hope in his, his death and his resurrection as our only means of salvation, what it means to repent of our sins and trust in him. May our hope be found only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death in our place. May that's where our hope be grounded. So we may we be sure about these things. We may not be under a spiritual delusion like the Jews of Jesus' day. And then secondly, as an application note, that there's, there's a lesson for us to learn as Christians here in terms of our evangelism. We know that we serve a loving heavenly father, a gracious heavenly father who, like the, the rich man who hosted this great feast, he has much room. He loves for people to come in. He desires for the kingdom to be full. And like the parable of the great feast, there's yet room in the kingdom of God. Second Peter says he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And, there, and therefore, we as his servants as his slaves on the face of the earth, are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first, but also to Gentiles like us. And so what do we do? We take up the role of the slave in the parable, and we go out into the highways, into the byways, wherever we can find people, and we compel them to come in. We plead with them to come in. We urge them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We plead with them to repent. We urge them with great passion. We compel them. This is what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, look, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We go out on mission for Jesus Christ. He's our king. He sends us out and we appeal to others. He says, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg on behalf of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. We, we call out and tell people, be reconciled to God. Get, get your life right with God. Come to know him. Surrender to him. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and his blood and his righteousness. This is what we're to do. We're to proclaim the gospel. We declare to the whole world who will ever listen, our friends, our family, our loved ones, we declare to them, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God placed our sin upon Jesus and if you will trust in him, then God will make Christ's righteousness become your righteousness. Through faith in him, you can be forgiven. So we should have the heart here of the master and the heart of the slave and go out and do the work of compelling them to come in. Please believe the gospel. Please believe it. You must believe this. Heaven and hell lie in the balance. Do not wait. Make sure you're trusting in Christ. And it's with this urgency that we must plead with our friends and family. We must warn them. You don't know when you're going to die. Your life could be taken from you at any moment. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name by which you may be saved. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So we plead with them. We cannot forget the reality of heaven and hell. We plead with them to come in. 
This is our responsibility. This is our role as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we do. And yet we need his help. So let's pray. Let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the Father's heart that comes through in this parable. He desires for all of his people to come in. We know that he's chosen some before the foundation of the world, and they're out there. They're out there in the city of Billings, and they're waiting for the gospel to come. And you've called us to be the means to go out and bring the gospel to them. So help us to be faithful. Help us to not sit back on the truth that we know, but would we go out and proclaim the truth? Help us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to give a false gospel with false assurance, but to give the true gospel and to warn people about the errors of false religion that are so prevalent everywhere around us. But may we plead with people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Help us towards this end, Lord. We need your help. Give us opportunities. Strengthen us. Help us not to fear men. Help us to fear you ultimately and declare the truth to all who will listen. Help us to be loving and winsome and bold and courageous towards this end. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.